I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water and forests of growing trees. I, brought, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The team's going to lead us in a couple of songs of worship now. Uh, Let's stand and let's sing. My name's Grant, um, in case we haven't met. Um, During the week, something I like to do, or what I get to do, is help students explore the difference that Jesus makes at uh, Curtin Uni. We have a group there called Christian Union, and we get a chance to meet students who aren't Christian, get to chat about um, the meaning of life, the existence of God, um, and whether they'd consider getting to know Jesus better for themselves. So before we get into our passage, I just want to say thank you to you who uh, collectively, uh, as a church, is, as a church support, you support me. And there's also a number of faces here who I know who continually are praying for the ministry there of AFES, uh, who I work for. And I'm also still on the lookout for uh, new financial supporters. So if you'd like to support a ministry like mine, do please chat with me sometime. Um, I'd love that. Uh, my cards are also out in the foyer. You can grab them too. Uh, well, Ecclesiastes is actually an old favourite book in the Bible of mine. And I'm, this week I've been surprised to find out how many people have told me um, that Ecclesiastes was a really important book for them to read when they were younger. And when I was a student at uni, I was blown away by how relevant and timely this book is. It just has a way of shining a floodlight onto the things that really matter, and it just changed my life. So when we apply its wisdom to our lives, it helps us to navigate our many choices that we have, 
It helps us to examine the things that we choose to fill our lives with and also to orientate our hearts in a a Godward direction to what he considers good. So last week we met the teacher, the author of the book, searching to understand what life's all about. And so this week our big question from chapter 2 is what good can we do? What might we do in our lives that will accomplish something good? We can look at the next slide. That would be helpful. Can I use this one? I can do it. There we go. Thank you. So the teacher begins by stating his experiment in verse 1. If you have your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes 2, that would be really helpful. So verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure Enjoy yourself. Then, a little bit later, he tells us the motivation of this experiment in verse 3. You see, with wisdom, he wants to seek out what is good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. He's trying to get to the bottom of this really important big life question. Does pleasure... Does pleasure-seeking accomplish anything good? Well, you might have heard people say, someone might have said to you, if it feels good, do it. And some people, they've lived out this saying in wild ways, particularly you might think of the psychedelic 60s and 70s, if you lived through that time. And it makes us think of maybe ageing hippies and a time gone by. And as a motto, it's, pretty, uh, it's probably the grandfather of today's motto, you do you, which is similar in a lot of ways, but there's a lot more rules and a lot more to do, a, bigger, a lot bigger on justice. Yet everyone at some level desires happiness. And we choose to do things because it makes us happy. For example, would you rather choose A meal that makes you feel happy, or would you rather go to McDonald's? Or if sport, if watching sport or movies brings you great pleasure, would you do them? Would you watch them? Well, I'll even fix the block septic tank, which I don't enjoy very much because I know that the alternative of not doing it is much worse. I still do it because it'll make me happier in the end. If it feels good, do it. It seems to be something we, quite, we live by. But what about doing what is good? I mean, objectively good, not just something that's better, but something that's objectively good. The Hebrew word for good in verse 3 happens to be the same word used in the creation story in Genesis 1, when God saw that it was good, and God declared his works were good. Something objectively good. Surely good choices for my health, my work and my family, they'll make me happier too. So how can we judge whether something we do is good? Is happiness the highest goal? Well, if we can be wise, if we can alter that activity, 
to maximize the amount of objective good we do in our lives, that would be profitable, right? Well, these are the kind of things that the teacher wanted to understand in his pleasure experiment. He started his experiment with laughter in verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? But did you know that there are laughter yoga clubs that you can actually join in WA? The idea is that when you join a group, you laugh and you even make fake laughter noises. And when you do that, you release endorphins that reduce stress and that sort of thing. Their website says, in a group, laughter becomes contagious and participants gain the benefits which are well-researched. Well, does it, something like that sound appealing to you? Well, we all enjoy a good laugh, don't we? Especially when we know there are actually health benefits. And this is the very first thing here that the teacher researched. The word used for laughter here, it points to the frivolity of a game or the frivolity of a party. And he says, quite simply, it's mad. At this point, we realize he's not the kind of guy that we'd want to invite to our party. His idea of madness, it's the loss of mental judgment. For example, instead of facing life for what it is, the joker voluntarily covers up reality with laughter. And it's the kind of escapism that I personally know quite well for myself. And Ecclesiastes is great because fools like me, we need more biblical wisdom. And when we deflect serious topics with comedy, the teacher says it's madness. The interesting thing is, for us, it's a very Australian way to diffuse a tense moment, isn't it? I'm sure you've been in a group setting and it's very tense and then somebody lightheartedly says something funny and it diffuses the moment. And it might be helpful to reflect on the madness of escaping truth with laughter if we do it too often. Does this mean that he's saying that we should be stony-faced, be serious all the time? Now, as wisdom literature This is not a law saying, no laughter allowed. But it is food for thought. Because life is serious business and there are big questions that we need to answer. According to Ecclesiastes 3, chapter 4, there actually is a time for laughter. But we need to see that he's putting laughter to the test If you think filling your life with laughter is going to amount to what is good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives, you'll be disappointed because you'll only be filling your life with madness. Well, what does he do next? Well, he goes to things that are a lot weightier than laughter, than mere laughter. So listen to the the list of of activities 
he tested in his pleasure experiment in verses 3 to 8. If you have your Bibles open, just follow along. I'm going to flash through it. He experimented with drinking wine and embracing folly in verse 3. He undertook building projects and property development in verse 4. He made the earth flourish with gardens, parks and and forests in verses 5 and 6. He created a great business as seen by his number of slaves in verse 7. He amassed great wealth, supported the arts and culture with the singers, and he had all the sexual pleasure that he desired in verse 8. It's quite a list. What's the result? Verse 9, we see he gained fame as his personal greatness was for all to see, which shows us that the human perspective of of this test, under the sun test, from our human perspective, as far as others were concerned, he was successful, doing a lot of good in their eyes. You see, all pleasures, highbrow and lowbrow, all alike were to his test. All a while, his mind was still guiding him with wisdom, he says. Look over that list again. Aren't these things the very markers of what a happy life should look like? Aren't these things the measure of a successful life? Were there any things in that list that you would desire to accomplish? Well, the very fact that we reach for these things to fill our lives with is precisely why the teacher puts these things to the test. You can even add your own things to this this list, the things that your eyes desire. Well, what would I like to add? I'll share with you a little story. Recently, I went to a camping shop to buy a beach trolley to cart all of our kids' stuff around in. And we've seen families awkwardly towing these trolleys around in parks on beach and stuff like that, packed with kids, packed with the kids' stuff. And someone once told me, when you get one of those trolleys, you know that your life is over. And it was all very funny at the time, but we actually needed something to cart around our kids and our kids' stuff. So I went to the shop, I stepped into the shop, and I looked at all the camping ads up on the walls, and I believed immediately I needed everything. This this thought came into my mind, every man needs a canoe. And I thought, this is living after all. And then my boys, they, I was not paying attention to them, and they started dancing around in the aisle near me because they saw bluey kickboards and bluey floaties. And they said they needed them. They actually needed them. And that's when it dawned on me, I didn't need a canoe. If I go camping, I won't begin living as if my life was over, or worse, that my life had never actually begun. It was clear that I'd swallowed a lie. 
You see, the teacher had all the resources at his disposal to give him an outcome to his pleasure experiment. You can see that he didn't shy away from throwing himself completely into this experiment, completely into his research. So we can't accuse him of missing out some detail that we might experience because he, in a sense, did it all. And he did it more thoroughly than we ever could. Verse 10 finishes off saying, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. So you could say, if it brought him pleasure, which it probably wouldn't have, he would have bought that canoe. Well, do you think this pleasure experiment is just all a bit too extreme? Is he just overthinking things? Aren't we allowed to enjoy ourselves at all? Verse 10 says, He got pleasure from his toil, and that pleasure itself was the reward. Imagine landscaping your backyard if you're into that sort of thing, if you're not, just come with us. Do a great job, and when you see that it's finished, you step back and you just bask in the satisfaction of a job well done. That feeling of enjoyment is what he's talking about. And yet in verse 11, he said, What did his toil achieve? Nothing was gained under the sun. Now, we need to weigh this up with what he'll say in in next week's passage. So hopefully I'm not going to steal thunder from next week. Chapter 2, verse 24, he says, There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This too, I saw, was from the hand of God. So finding pleasure in your work can actually be a gift from God. He calls this your lot or your portion, but that pleasure is still temporary. It's still fleeting. And ultimately, nothing is gained because death is going to take that all away. The end goal of this experiment was to discover what is objectively good for us to do in our short lives. The conclusion, pleasure failed the test. Pleasure is a dead end. Well, what do we do then with this finding? What do we do? Do we stop doing these things? No laughing, no wine, no building houses or gardens or savings or singers or sex or toil. And I think this is where we start to have fun with wisdom literature. You see, He's not testing these things to see if they're good in and of themselves. We can find other parts in the Bible which outline ethical behavior and tell you which of these things are moral or not, for example, in biblical law. And it goes without saying that many things that people find pleasure in are overtly evil and immoral in light of God's law, which is why we should reject That phrase, if it feels good, do it. Which makes goodness 
something what, which the individual makes up for themselves. But the thing tested here is his heart. We saw that back in verse 1. He did those things because they're known to be the delight of a man's heart. The things his eyes desired. His heart took pleasure in those things. Which takes us to the next thing that we need to notice about this experiment. In the list of things from verses 4 to 9... The number of times that he uses the pronoun I and says for myself. Maybe you noticed it. Listen again. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens. I made myself pools. I also gathered for myself treasure whatever, so I became great, etc., etc. When he tested pleasure, the pleasure was always directed at one person. It was himself. You see, pleasure-seeking is nearly always a self-centered activity. We've been wired for instant gratification, which makes this a hard teaching for us. You see, our whole world seems to be taking advantage of our self-centered desires. And he asks us the question, and for what use? What does pleasure, self-gratification accomplish? Basically, everything that we do now has been thrown up in the air. And this passage just lets it all fall down without giving us the answers. So the temptation then is for us to stop the experiment here, close Ecclesiastes, because it makes us frustrated. But if we want to grow in wisdom, this is where we need to start doing the hard work. To misquote uh, author and pastor Ray Orland, Ecclesiastes is a gospel book because it's in the Bible. That means it's good news for bad people. The teacher shines a floodlight on our, self, on our self-centered desires, our need for pleasure, and shows our hearts to be faulty. That name given to the pursuit of pleasure, it's technically called hedonism. When our happiness, our our pleasure is the goal of our lives, we're living as hedonists. Ecclesiastes shows us the tendency that we have to be like that. But Ecclesiastes points us beyond itself to a better way a way that is not fleeting, yet a way that's filled with beauty, joy, and wonder, and a way where we're not the center of it. If you've got your Bibles there or your phones, um, if you like, you can turn to the book of Philippians with me. We're going to turn there now. Throughout it, the Apostle Paul 
urges us to rejoice always. So turn to Philippians chapter 3. Consider how this book in the Bible was written by a guy who was rarely in circumstances that you'd call pleasurable. This letter, it describes how he was in chains and his experience was being poured out like a drink offering. And this was when he wasn't being stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes or abandoned by his co-workers. And this letter he recalled a time, this chapter he recalls a time in his life when he accomplished a list of things that he thought would bring him success under the sun, which he happens to call confidence in the flesh. We'll have a look at Philippians 3, 4-6 with me. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Paul was a driven guy. He's an overachiever. Perhaps a man only Solomon could rival in deeds, in confidence in the flesh. Not only had he done everything right, He was born into the right family in the right way. Paul's point here will echo what the teacher said when he said, when I considered all the hand my hands had done and the toil that I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Likewise, Paul considered the gains of that life. He tallied up his profits from his deeds. But when he met Jesus, everything was changed from, and the columns were switched from gains to losses. Now continue on in Philippians 3, 7, from 3, 3, 7 with me. Whatever gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Why does Paul live for Christ and not for himself? What brings him joy, contentment, and peace in the most difficult of times. Well, he says it there in three, chapter 3, verse 8. It's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Gaining Christ and be found, being found in him. As we read through this letter that Paul wrote, even his other letters that are preserved in the Bible for us. We see that Paul was someone so satisfied by Jesus. He tells us the worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord as something far greater than anything else that we think we might gain under the sun. And I think this gets us pretty close to the teacher's conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. 
when he says, the end of the matter is to fear God and keep his commandments. So seeking pleasure isn't the highest good that we can do in the few days of our lives. The pursuit of self-pleasure is certainly a dead end. But the person who's satisfied in Jesus doesn't make a God out of pleasure. This is because when they trust in Jesus' completed work on the cross, their burden of sin is removed. They find joy in the new found freedom that Jesus paid for. Contentment and peace is found in a loving God who doesn't change with circumstances. So we're not commanded to be stern. The outcome of seeking the greatest good, glorifying God, is pleasure in God by being found in Christ. Say that again. The outcome of seeking the greatest good, glorifying God, is pleasure in God by being found in Christ. Glorifying God means treasuring him and enjoying him. Being found in Christ means that we can say the most beautiful thing of ourselves. We can say, when I'm in Christ, I'm adopted by God. I'm made righteous in his sight. In spite of our history of deciding what was good for ourselves and committing cosmic treason in the act, we'll never realize the depth of how sinful we are. Well, earlier we briefly considered that everyone desires happiness. And when we choose to do things, we choose to do things because they make us happy. I mean, I'll even dig a hole in my front yard only to have the sewage pipes spew forth unmentionable things in order to gain a greater happiness. So when we consider the question, if we can judge what extent something that we do is good, how can we be wise and alter that activity to maximise the amount of good that we do in our lives? But what have we learnt from this passage? We've learnt that when we take pleasure in our toil, when we, when we have pleasure in our toil or what we eat, that's a gift from God. But if my God is my stomach, which is what Paul says in Philippians... If my God is my stomach and the pleasure of eating is all about me, I'll be addicted to whatever my heart desires because I'll never be satisfied by it. The pleasure of it, it's a vapor and I'll always need more. There's no gain. But the the person who's satisfied in Christ is content with much or with little. It's because of the surpassing worth of Christ. It brings a knowledge that we are more loved than we can ever imagine. We can eat that meal and we can be supremely thankful. We can say grace every meal because we're grateful that God supplied us with our daily bread. But we can also be grateful that we enjoyed it. God could have created our our taste buds so that all foods tasted the same. But he didn't. 
And so we can say, thank you, God, for that. Well, a frivolous thing that I enjoy, I like to watch footy, and it makes me feel happy sometimes. And even that is a gift of kindness from God. But we need to remember that sport, like laughter, is madness. It's such a lame God. I'm not satisfied even when my team reaches the top for just a fleeting moment. Well, how can I maximise the good in frivolous entertainment like sport, Disney Plus, TikTok? Well, there's a couple of things I think we can observe. First, we need to weigh up if it is simply madness. Are we entertaining ourselves to death? Wisdom might teach us that we need to switch off our devices and talk to a person or read a book. I recommend the Bible. It's a good book, the best book. That's the first thing we need to weigh up. Is it simply madness? The second thing, are we using that thing to glorify God? Talking about these things, these frivolous things, it can help us to build relationships. But it's problematic if those relationships never progress from the frivolous. So let's guard our hearts from the temptation to glory in things as if they have surpassing worth and not Jesus. All things can become ultimate things to us when we put ourselves at the centre of it all, we put our pleasure at the centre of it all. However, when Christ is at the centre, when we glory in his gift of grace to us, sinners as we are, we can find so much more joy in life. So let's not be too easily satisfied in anything less than Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you because we're not our own. You made us for yourself You gave us this world to use and to enjoy. We so often seek after our own good and not yours. Yet you bought us with a price and you purchased our freedom by the blood of Jesus. He is worthy of our praise, all glory and honour. Father, we pray that we may know him and be in him. Help us to view things clearly as we so often seek our own interests and we rarely put others first and love others like you first loved us. Help us to serve your people as you served us. Father, please help us to glorify you in all that we do and find our satisfaction in Jesus' work alone. Help us to maximise the good in our lives by honouring you in everything because of the grace of the gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.